Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am your host today, Christopher Rawl. I have a newsletter that I put out every Wednesday morning. It is free, it is easy to consume. It will not take up a lot of your time. It ties together nicely with this show. To get that newsletter, all you need to do is go to chrisrawl.com, click on the subscribe button, put your email address in, and voila, it will be there on Wednesday morning. Now, we are, as of this recording, three days into the Stanley Cup playoffs. I'm on pins and needles. I feel like I've lived 400 years in the last three days, and that only encompasses one avalanche game, which another one will happen after I record this. By the time this show airs, you will know the results of game two. There is so much stuff going on. I can't even function. I can't fully pay attention to what's going on in actual life because I'm consumed by the Stanley Cup playoffs and in part the NBA playoffs. But on the bright side, it gives us a hell of a lot to talk about, which leads nicely into today's show and the question that I want to talk about. What is a playoff player? What is a playoff player? That is a question on my mind because of the demise of my hometown team, the Utah Jazz. There are a lot of questions swirling around that franchise. And there's a lot of discussion and varying opinions about what should be happening this offseason. Tear down, try to retain, if you have to hold on to one of your two stars, Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell, which would it be? A lot of varying opinions between everything within that swirling cocktail. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, a really interesting thing to try and parse through and examine. Now, the demise of the Jazz, not just in this year's round one against Dallas, but over the last few years, dating back in my mind to the bubble against the Nuggets and then last year against the Clippers, it has started to slowly raise questions about each of these players, Gobert and Mitchell, just the strengths they bring to the table, when those are strengths, regular season playoffs, the weaknesses they bring to the table, when do those really shine, regular season or playoffs, how sustainable is it to build a team if these are your two best players? Do you have other options if you are a small market team like the Jazz? Again, a lot of questions, really complicated subject. It's not as simple as just saying, this person's bad in the playoffs and this person's not, or we should just get rid of them because we can do better. There's so many things that go into trying to build a small market NBA team. You don't really have the luxuries that the Lakers or the Nets or the Knicks have. So if you're the Jazz, you say, okay, let's talk about these two players. We know that. Rudy Gobert, he's the spine of the defense. He guarantees us a certain level of regular season success. Playoffs, mm, a lot of people think that that just completely crumbles defensively in the playoffs. I'm not so certain. I think that's more a roster construction issue. And if he was surrounded with better perimeter defenders, we wouldn't necessarily say he's great in the regular season, but a complete liability on defense in the playoffs. I don't think we would say that. However, on the offensive side of the ball, I think the questions are a lot more valid. He's fine in the regular season, great. He sets a bunch of screens. Okay, cool. The playoffs is really where I think his flaws on the offensive end come to light because defenses are able to somewhat ignore him. And especially when they're going smaller and they have switchable lineups on defense, they don't have to respect him coming and screaming and trying to fight through this, they just go, okay, we'll switch. And it doesn't matter if a small player is on you because we don't think that you can punish us. And for the most part, 
he really has not, with the exception of the fourth quarter of game four against Dallas when he grabbed a bunch of offensive rebounds. We really haven't seen a lot of that over the last three playoff exits from Gobert on the offensive side. It's a valid knock, and it's something that you need to think about when you're going, okay, how good is this guy for us in the regular season? How good is he for us in the playoffs? What do we want to build this team around? Mitchell, he's going through the same kind of questions. His are essentially a role reversal. Great score, okay. Does a lot of it in isolation, maybe inefficiently, especially in the Dallas series. All right, I don't love that. Defensively, just an abomination. It looks like it's just an effort issue for the most part. And if he gave any effort, okay, you could at least be a reasonable defender. I mean, the dude came into the league with the idea that he was going to immediately contribute defense out of the gate. He's got the wingspan. He's got the quickness. He's got the strength. And instead, we just have never really seen that. So now you're going, okay, that doesn't really hurt you in the regular season. And he scores 26 points a game. That's great. Mm, in the playoffs now, all right. He's still scoring, actually scoring more than 26. He's scoring 30 a game, but he's doing it on really inefficient shooting splits. He's not getting a lot of people involved. And defensively, teams are just switch hunting him and just murdering him on that side of the ball. So as this is going through my mind, I watched the first two games of Phoenix-Dallas. Phoenix is just, they're demolishing Dallas because Phoenix is a well-oiled basketball machine. And through two games, it has me thinking even more depressed thoughts about this Utah Jazz iteration, which I'm pretty sure will not be the same going into next season. I just don't know what form it will take because Gobert on offense and Mitchell on defense, questions abound about the sustainability of both of those people in the playoffs. So now you got to try and find what do we value? Is it are we fine with just being pretty good in the regular season, but knowing we're going to crumble in the playoffs? Do we take a big swing and say, maybe we struggle to get to the playoffs, but we're more equipped if we're there? There's a lot that goes into this. But the Phoenix Suns, I'm watching them play Dallas, the same team who just ran Utah out of the gym. And Phoenix is doing a bunch of stuff that I go, oh, between the combination of talent and understanding of basketball, this team is just a lot better than the Utah Jazz. I'm not breaking news by that. I don't think anybody would have questioned that going into the playoffs, but it's even more apparent as I watch these first two games. Now, I'll get a little bit more into that in a second. But as I'm watching these first and second round series in the NBA and now the first round of the Stanley Cup, I'm getting a better sense of the separation of the regular season, the playoffs. Recorded a couple episodes about that, I think two weeks or so ago. If you want to go back and listen, if you have not yet, just kind of highlighting the very clear differences between what is required in the regular season versus what is required in the playoffs in both of those sports, basketball and hockey. Now, a playoff player, as we know it, it's usually associated with somebody like Tom Brady or Michael Jordan, a player who has won a lot of team championships, which those two players, I go, yeah, those are great players. They've performed. They're, they're great in the regular season. They've been great in the playoffs. What I think is admirable and magnetic about watching those players in the playoffs is Sometimes you see a noticeable blip, especially with MJ, where you go, hmm, somehow this guy was awesome in the regular season. He was the MVP and ascended to an even higher level in the playoffs because he knew that that's what the moment demanded. Now, there are also a ton of great players who have great talent that there may be more built for the regular season than the playoffs. James Harden would be the one who immediately comes to mind as we watch him just slob around the court in games one and two against Miami, look completely disinterested and just not equipped whether that's physical or mental, I can't tell at this point in time. Seems like his body is not what it once was. 
his mind seems like it is what it always has been. Just a dude who maybe just doesn't want it as much as his peers. And that's, that's a question that is going to abound for his entire career. It just is. We have so much information of James Harden in the playoffs where I go, it's cool in the regular season. You're great. It's in a roundabout way, similar to what Mitchell brings to Utah, where you're the focal point of the offense, even more so with Harden back in the day with Houston. And it's cool and it works in the regular season. Great, great, great. But once you get into the playoffs and you're facing the best defenses and especially over five and six and seven games, and they're saying this person is not going to beat us, it becomes a lot harder to play that style of basketball. We've seen that with James Harden, why he has a lot of notable playoff failures, why his playoff resume does not stack up to his statistical resume in the regular season. There's a lot of questions about various players within the NHL. Recently, it's really tied into size, just physical stature, because the NHL has been more open-minded over the last decade, but really within, I would say, the last five years of drafting smaller players, giving them room to grow, making them key integral parts of their team, saying, hey, we can, we can succeed with these people. Players like Mitch Marner on Toronto or Johnny Gaudreau on Calgary, two like MVP candidates, or Sam Gerrard on my Colorado Avalanche. That style of defenseman you would never see back in the day. He's, he looks like he's my size out there. He's small. He's known for puck moving. He's not going to get physical. He does his work with his mind, with his stick, with his breakout passing, all that kind of stuff. Matt Greslick on the Boston Bruins, another good example. Smaller defenseman. You wouldn't see that style of player 40 years ago. You wouldn't see it 20 years ago. And now there's more of that in the NHL. However, questions still abound about this style of player in the playoffs. We know all those players are good in the regular season. They've all had great success. We haven't seen that necessarily within the playoffs yet. However, you're talking about young players here. So maybe there's a, a ceiling that's going to get broken through. And in a couple of years, I'm going to be sitting here going, you know, what's been interesting is watching this transition of the ability of small players to have a large impact in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So there's a lot that goes into this playoff player cocktail, if you want to call it that. But right at the top, and what I want to really concentrate on today, is the player who has no championships to their name, but I watch, I'm going to talk about three today, and I just go, this is a playoff performer. Yes, that's possible. Some people disagree. Some people watch a player, an individual player, lose in a team sport again and again and again, and they go, this player is not cut out for the playoffs for reasons X, Y, and Z. And I watch a lot of sports and I watch all of the playoffs. And especially when it piles up over years, I go, this person is just built for it. This person is, in my mind, the definition of a playoff player, even though they have no championships to their name. Right at the top of that list is a guy who I talked about continually, continually, continually through the playoffs last year and is just the person, the only person who I want to talk about in the NBA playoffs. It's Chris Paul. He plays for the Phoenix Suns. He has zero championships to his name. There are a lot of people, more than not, that believe he is not a playoff performer. That the small style point guard, ah, look at all these past team defeats that Chris Paul has been a part of. Blew this series here, lost in the finals last year. Okay. And I watch him every single game and just go, this dude is a quintessential playoff performer, in my opinion. He's great in the regular season. I mean, if you want to talk about winning, there is something about regular season success that I think we kind of dismiss. For Chris Paul, it's a stat that they brought up on the broadcast. It was, I think, in the Pelican series on TNT. But they're talking about 
Chris Paul and they go, this guy has led four different franchises to their best season ever. Four different franchises from a regular season standpoint. That is an incredible stat. In 2008, the New Orleans Hornets went 56 and 26. Best season in the history of their franchise. 2014, LA Clippers, 57 and 25. Best season in the history of their franchise. 2018, Houston Rockets, 65 and 17. 2022, Phoenix Suns, 64 and 18. Four different franchises. With this guy as their point guard, set a regular season record for wins. Now that's regular season success, and, and some people go, ah, oh, who cares? Because he hasn't necessarily matched that in the playoffs. Well, we don't even care about this. And I say, uh, there's, I'm going to push back on the first part. There is something to that. When you have that much success in the regular season with that many different teams and players around you, it speaks to something that you have. This winning, I don't want to call it a gene. I want to call it a, a skill that you bring to the table. You understand how to make pieces fit and how to win. And yes, that hasn't necessarily translated into a championship at the end of the playoffs. But I have no reason to question that Chris Paul isn't capable of doing that because I watch him and I go, just go and watch the second half of game one against the Pelicans. Goes bananas. The fourth quarter of that game, it's as good as you can watch a point guard play. Watch the entire game six on the road against the Pelicans with a diminished Devin Booker who he's back his first game back from a hamstring injury. He's not the same version of himself that we're now seeing in this Dallas series with more rest. And Chris Paul goes, "Uh, I got it. I've already beat them couple times without you here in the last couple games uh why don't i just go 14 for 14 just completely control the pace of this game because this is what i do in the playoffs even if it hasn't amounted to championship i'm betting on as soon as booker goes out it's 1-1 it's going back to new orleans and i've never felt especially in this game three i bet the spread for phoenix i've never felt more comfortable betting on a team missing maybe their best player with Booker being out, because I know what Paul brings to the table in the playoffs. He's a playoff performer for me. I just go, no, this guy is built for this. You know, the best way I can describe him, he understands how to play basketball. He just does. He understands it in the regular season. He understands it even more in the playoffs because the playoffs, it becomes even more about X's and O's and the opposing coaching staff saying, we are going to put you in the positions you don't want to be in. And Chris Paul is just, no, my mind understands everything. Even on the fly, they can switch things up and, and he's just not going to be confused. He's just he just knows the correct play to make at every single turn. Watch last night against Dallas game two, the fourth quarter against the Mavericks. He scores or assists on the first 19 points within that final quarter as Phoenix just puts their pedal on or puts their foot on the gas pedal and says bye bye. He puts poor Luka Doncic in a blender just again and again and again. And this is part of being a playoff performer. Now, Luca, phenomenal offensive player. I, I believe he's a, a playoff performer in his own right. He's showed that even though this is the first year he's even won a playoff series. But on the offense, he has to be everything right now for this team. I think it's part of the flaw about them. I don't like that style in the playoffs. It reminds me of the James Harden thing. I don't want to rely that heavily upon one person to score and create everything for an offense. I just don't like it. That's a personal preference. But on the other end, Chris Paul says, Mm, I know what the playoffs are about and I'm going to call Luka Doncic up into a pick time and time and time again. That's happening as I'm watching it. And really after the game, I'm kind of looking at stuff and I go, they were like just ruthless and going after him. So I see this this morning tweet from Kurt Goldsberry, who's talking about the Suns hunting Luka 
And he says, Doncic was the screener defender on 19 on-ball screens in the second half. That's the third most in any half of Luca's career, okay? So he's on the ball as the screener defender on these plays. Again, a, a statistical outlier in the career of Luca, which means, okay, Phoenix is going out of their way again and again to do this. On these plays, the Suns averaged 1.81 points per chance when Doncic was the screener defender in the second half. That is the highest efficiency allowed by a single defender in any half over the last three seasons with a minimum of 15 direct picks. So a lot of nerd stats in there, but it paints a very clear picture of what I was watching. Just man, Chris Paul, who again, despite the zero championships, is the very definition of a playoff player, understanding what the playoffs are about. Ruthless switch hunting. That is one of the things that you want to be able to do in the playoffs if the opposition has a defensive weakness. The Dallas Mavericks have that with Luka. Part of that is because he is expending a lot of energy on the offensive side of the ball, and it's a pretty unfair ask to say, you got to do that on both sides. It's pretty much been one player that I've ever watched who can do that, and it was Prime LeBron. So now they're bringing Luka, who's kind of gassed and not that good at defense to begin with, and they're saying, try and chase Chris Paul around and try and chase all these really skilled players on Phoenix's team around. Now, the skilled players, that's something we should point out because part of all of this is tied into your surroundings. If you're just Chris Paul with a bunch of bums, you can't hunt switches if the entire defense only cares about you. It's a very noticeable difference between what Phoenix can do versus what Utah was doing in round one. Part of that playoff player dilemma. Because DeAndre Ayton and Rudy Gobert, it's easy to just say, well, here are the, who do you think's better? This and One of the differences between these two players and why it makes more sense in the playoffs for Phoenix to be able to just beat the pants off of Dallas, whereas Utah was getting the pants beat off of them, is because within this switch hunting, it helps to have a big who can punish you, which DeAndre Ayton does. And that's really been apparent for a second straight season. We saw that last year. Phoenix was the team waiting for the Clippers after they beat Utah, after Gobert really struggled on the offensive side in game five and six when the Clippers completely downshifted and went small. And then they went and tried to play the same way against Phoenix. And Phoenix was like, okay, that's fine. We got a lot of switchable people and we have a big guy that's going to beat your ass on the offensive glass and knows how to score the ball from 15 feet in, which Aiden did last year. And he's done really efficiently and well through two games against Dallas. Now, going back to Chris Paul, he just, I'm running out of ways and words to describe what he is in the playoffs and what I watch every night and how frustrating it can be to hear him talked about. Uh, he, he hasn't won a championship. We're not going to acknowledge any of this until he wins a championship because I'm going, this is transcendent stuff, even if it doesn't result in a championship. I come across another tweet. This was from Matt Williams, a dude who does stats for ESPN. And after last night's game, he's saying, Chris Paul has shot 72.1% from the mid-range this postseason. That's 31 for 43. His mid-range field goal percentage is better than any player's field goal percentage in the paint this postseason among 35 individuals with over 35 attempts. That is, that is almost incomprehensible. <laughs> when I saw that, I, I did a double take and then I did a triple take and I said, this can't be true. Yet I've watched pretty much all of these Suns games and it seems like Chris Paul has not missed a mid-range jumper. I was kind of surprised that he'd somehow missed 12. But now I'm sitting here going, uh, he is shooting better from the mid-range on 43 attempts than anybody has done from the paint with the same volume of field goal attempts. That is 
astounding stuff. And it's a testament to what I think is very clear, which some people may disagree with, but okay. Uh, if you want to argue with me, let's get together and argue. You can be a clear-cut playoff performer despite having zero championships to your name. Chris Paul is a great case in point. Now, there are two other people that I want to highlight that are younger, but they're also checking the boxes. Despite not having a team championship, I'm going, oh my gosh, these people are built for it. They're just, they're great in the regular season. Kel McCarr and Nathan McKinnon on my Colorado Avalanche, they are phenomenal players. Kel McCarr, he should win the Norris Trophy this year. Maybe he won't, but he's, in my opinion, the best defenseman in hockey right now. Nathan McKinnon, he's come in second in the MVP voting in hockey. He should have won that in 2018, but whatever. So let bygones be bygones. When he's healthy and playing, he's on the short list of the best players in hockey. And from a pure joy standpoint, much like Chris Paul, watching these three play in the regular season, I go, these guys are awesome. I could do it day in, day out. Because there's competitive fire there. They're not half-assing their way through these games, these sleepy February games. And they're incredibly talented. They're doing things every night that I just, as a close consumer of sports, really appreciate and savor and go, that's sweet. I don't see that a lot. Now, when you have all that and you raise the stakes and you say, but now it's the playoffs and McCarr and McKinnon, you're going to have to play against the best teams and they're going to be even more physical and the opposing coaching staff. They're really going to go out of their way to say, let's make sure we're cross-matching our best forward unit against McKinnon's, the one we think that can best shut him down. Let's cross-match our defensive pairings. Same thing. Let's just try our very best to make it hard on these people. And the stakes are raised and the pressure's raised. You can't beat what comes out of really, really, really high-level players like McCarr and McKinnon, who, yes, they don't have a Stanley Cup yet, hopefully, fingers crossed. But game one against Nashville happens on Tuesday. I, I got the butterflies going. I'm just ready. I'm so ready for Colorado to win a Stanley Cup. I can't even describe it. And Colorado comes torching out of the gates. It's just not that we need them, but it's one of those 15-minute stretches from the start of that period until when Colorado's up 5-0 where you go, what this team can do is incredible. And right at the top of that is the spearhead combination of these two players. They're flashing a stat after McKinnon scores the first goal of the game. Sweet shot on the power plays in the bumper spot, just rips a shot past poor David Riddich, who's chased after 15 minutes. And they say, yeah, on a, on a points per game basis, Nathan McKinnon is the number three scorer in the history of hockey behind Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. When you're in company with those two, you're probably in a pretty good place. At the time, he was 1.41 points per game, which is amazing. And that's before factoring in the three points he accumulated in game one. Now, I've watched every single playoff game of Nathan McKinnon's career. I've watched the vast majority of regular season games of Nathan McKinnon's career. And I go, this dude brings it. He brings it in the regular season. But when they've gotten into the playoffs, starting in his rookie season against the Minnesota Wild, he has brought it. He's been there for it. He is just a, a force of nature. He's a tornado. Just a dude who somehow bumps a game that is already amongst the best in the league in the regular season into another stratosphere in the playoffs. Within the last few years, especially in 2018 and 2019, the Avalanche were a one-line team. They didn't have the depth that they now possess. It was McKinnon with Landeskog and Rantanen. If you could shut that line down, the Avalanche were just impotent. They would sit in their own zone and suck on their thumbs, and you could have as many shots on goal as you wanted. And then the McKinnon line would come out and it was the opposition just saying, all right, hold on for dear life for the next 45 seconds to a minute. And if they don't score a goal, perfect. We're probably going to score one within the next four minutes. And he's doing that in the playoffs. In 2018, he drags them there. 
great in the playoffs against Nashville 2019. Just a force of nature against Calgary in an upset in the round one, a force of nature against San Jose, stretching him to game seven in the round two. In 2020, he's just kind of a man on the island, but he was so incredible during this playoff run that ended with a game seven overtime defeat to Dallas in the 2020 series that I'm watching him just going, this, what, what is this? This is the very definition of a playoff player, in my opinion, despite the fact that, yeah, okay, at that point, he's six seasons into his career, doesn't have a Stanley Cup. Now we're adding two more and still doesn't have a Stanley Cup. But Nathan McKinnon's game, which again is phenomenal in the regular season, is even more built for the playoffs. Go back to that game one. Watch his first shift and he just comes out, his hair's on fire, and he goes and just mashes some poor Nashville player into the boards. And I'm going, yep, here we go. And a couple shifts later, he comes out, he scores that early power play goal. And I go, yep, he's just here for it. And then he's scoring a goal later in the game. He's just running through Roman Yossi at one point in his own defensive zone, taking the puck, making an almost breakaway. It's just the physicality plus the skill that you see on display. We know it's a recipe for playoff success. Part of what makes me really optimistic about what Colorado can do this year in the playoffs. And Makar has ascended into the same stratosphere. Dude who is incredible in the regular season. Again, second place in the Norris Trophy voting last year. Should, in my opinion, win it this year. I don't understand what we're talking about if you don't think he's the Norris Trophy. But again, let's let bygones be bygones. Through 36 playoff games in his career. Young, yeah, he's been here since 2018. Nearly a point per game player. He has 34 points. That's even more impressive when you understand he played 10 games his rookie season. He was only seeing 17 minutes per game. He was not playing on their top power play unit. He was seeing sheltered minutes within that lineup. And the, the last couple of years, we've just seen him blossom into also a force of nature, also a superstar, also somebody whose game is noticeably better from this level that is astounding in the regular season to the playoffs. So this is what it means to me, okay? I think a lot of times the playoff player, in order to be acknowledged, we have to have confirmation of a team championship. Something that kind of drives me nuts, really with the career of Chris Paul. Uh, but... You know, the longer it goes on with McKinnon, especially McCarr's still young, the longer it goes on, the more questions are raised. And despite the fact of what we are watching, which is transcendent stuff, people are liable to go, I don't know. I mean, there must be some inherent flaw within this individual because why is his team not winning? Well, there's a lot that goes into that. Funny you should say that. <laughs> because, all right, I, I personally don't believe it's a large revelation to say, Chris Paul or Kale McCarr or Nathan McKinnon are playoff players. I think some people would agree with that. They are good in the regular season. That's very obvious. Somehow they are funner to watch in the playoffs. That's quite obvious. But as we talk about what needs to happen in order to win a championship, it can't just be the stars, right? Continual preaching theme of the Chris Rawl show. Because the offshoot of the star playoff players, whether they've won championships Brady, MJ, whether they haven't, Paul, McCarr, McKinnon. The offshoot and what is a necessary ingredient is the role players that emerge as really valuable in the playoffs. Also, something quite interesting to watch happen in real time about players that maybe I'm on the fence about, maybe I have some questions, maybe I don't, but you don't really know with role players until you watch it. It's easier to project stars into a playoff setting than it is to a role player. Because sometimes you see role players that, oh, I kind of like this guy in the regular season. Uh, sure, yeah. 
Jordan Clarkson, this is great. And then you watch him get switch hunted on defense in the playoffs and you go, oh, the 18 points per game you're giving me in the regular season and then in the playoffs, that becomes significantly less valuable when you're giving up 30. And those 18 points are coming on five for 15 shooting nights every other night. That's not as great. So with Phoenix last year, you know, some of the revelations, Mikael Bridges, holy, holy cow. Yeah, this dude makes a lot of sense. At first, I'm thinking maybe he can be a three and D player. And then the playoffs are going on. And really, especially into this year, I'm going, this guy's just good. He's phenomenal within this setting. Incredible perimeter defender. But more than just a simple, I can spot up and maybe shoot 35% on wide open threes. Good shooter. Can actually create some stuff off the dribble. Terror on defense. Good rebounder. Like we're seeing just a, a heightened ceiling for what Mikhail Bridges, a person who nobody would look at and say, this is a star player. You can build a team around him. But you need players like Mikhail Bridges to win a championship. You need players like DeAndre Ayton, who's undergone a really incredible transformation on the defensive end from his rookie season to now. His rookie season, truly one of the worst players in basketball. He was an abomination on the defensive side of the ball. Couldn't guard anybody, just didn't have an understanding of what to do on defense. He he seemed like he was fit to go play perimeter defense for the Utah Jazz, just a chicken with his head cut off running around. And he's made incredible strides. To the point where he's not just not a liability, he's a strength, especially against these small ball lineups that teams want to lean into in the playoffs. All right, yeah, I can switch. All right, yeah, I can hold my own. I can rebound. My defensive IQ has gone from bottom of the barrel to high up. It's really pretty high level on a team that has a lot of high IQ players, especially on the defensive side. You need players like this. A person who's made an incredible turn this year is Brandon Clark of the Memphis Grizzlies. If you know me, you know that players like Brandon Clark, they're just, they're catnip for me. They satiate what I desire in a role player. I loved him at Gonzaga when he was more of a star because that's just how college basketball works. And then I was surprised when he's dropping to the Grizzlies into the 20s in the draft because as I would watch him, I'd go, this, I think this guy very clearly projects as an impact player in the playoffs. Everything that he does makes sense in this type of setting, which we are now seeing with the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, He's got the endless motor. He's got the relentless desire to attack the glass. He's got the switchability. He's got all of the things that you need, that you desire, when the playoffs start transforming how the game is played. He's one of the main reasons that Memphis was able to advance past Minnesota in round one. Kind of a crazy storyline of that series was just, "Ah, Stephen Adams, this might not be the series for you. We don't want to be slow and plotting and you're really getting hung out to dry. So we're going to downshift. And the key person within that turned out to be Brandon Clark, who just gave the Timberwolves fits. Go back and watch game five, the fourth quarter of that game. It's the John Morant dunk. It's him hitting the go ahead three. It's the lefty layup to win at the buzzer uh, when Anthony Edwards goes and chases a steal. But what's kind of lost in the shuffle of those highlight plays was who the true key of that game was. It was Brandon Clark. He was a menace. He was everywhere. He's getting put back points. He's getting fouled. Every single shot that was missed by Memphis, it seemed like Brandon Clark was either grabbing or tipping out or just making it hard for Memphis or Minnesota to do something. That's the style of player that you need to accentuate who is the star at the middle. In this case, John Morant. So this is true in every team sport. I cannot stress this enough. Even in basketball, where your stars are the most important because there's only five people on the floor, but you still need this kind of stuff. Go and ask the Jazz 
how much they wish they had better players, especially in a playoff setting, to surround Mitchell and Gobert. Maybe some of these things that we're really just harping on wouldn't be as prevalent because you got a Mikael Bridges or you got a Brandon Clark. You got these people who make sense in a playoff setting. You have to have them. McCarr and McKinnon. Hockey is, hockey is such a team sport that it's really sometimes hard to describe. Because you can have a team like the Oilers with Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid. And you go, these two are incredible. Holy cow. And somehow this team can just be so bad at times. Because there's so many things that happen. There's four forward lines. There's three defensive pairings. There's a goaltender, right? So the avalanche, great. You got the stars at the top. How do you build around that? And that's been the question of the last couple of years with Colorado. And what makes me just so optimistic, probably to a point that it is going to be just soul crushing if the avalanche lose in the playoffs, is Sakic, the general manager, has done an incredible job of flushing out what type of player we need to surround our stars. Great. We got Landis Cog at the top, Rantanen, McKinnon, McCarr. Kadri's had a star turn this year. Kemper and Nett has been awesome. Devon Tays, great. How do we accentuate that? Person who comes to mind who I'm just raving about. Any person who wants to talk hockey with me, right near the start, I start talking about Arturi Lekkanen. They acquired him at the trade deadline against Montreal. He scores the fifth goal that chases Riddich in game one against Nashville. But that's, goal scoring is almost irrelevant to what I watch Arturi Lekkanen do. You just look at his statistics, you pull up hockey reference, you go, all right, this guy scores 35, 40 points in the regular season. What's the big deal? I don't get it. Okay, his advanced numbers, his expected goals, his core seek, well, yeah, those, those are pretty reasonable. Okay, must be something here. As a play driver, then you watch him and the eye test and just the way he fills in the gaps and the way that everything he does is unquantifiable by a box score because he's a menace. It's the Brandon Clark idea transferred to hockey. His stick and his body are everywhere. Relentless forecheck, relentless back check. He just, he seems like his motor is never running out. They send him out there. It doesn't matter if he's playing with McKinnon. It doesn't matter if he's playing with Kadri and Landeskog as he was in game one. It doesn't matter if he's playing with Nachushkin and Comfer as he does when the Avalanche had injuries at the end of the regular season. He's just jumping off the screen because, oh, somehow the other team had possession of the puck and now they don't. What just happened? And you watch it again and again. You go, oh, Arturi Lekkanen is just digging these pucks out and he understands where to be. And his hockey IQ is as high as anybody you could ever see. Maybe he doesn't have the natural talent that McCarr McKinnon has, but almost nobody does. What he has is a really good baseline of skill combined with an understanding of how to play hockey, period, and an understanding of how to play playoff hockey, which is a slightly different thing. So you start getting players like that to accentuate your stars and you go, okay, because without this style of role player, all of these people I'm talking the Clarks of the world, the Bridges, the Aitons, the Lekkonens. Without this style of role player, you cannot win a championship. This is where it gets a little frustrating when Chris Paul is the one who has to bear the cross for not winning a championship over and over. And he's not completely blameless. He's had some, he's had games in the past. Yeah, okay, great. When they blew a series against Oklahoma City uh, and Paul was on the Clippers at the time, the game five and game six of that series, you can point to Chris Paul, especially down the stretch of game five when the Clippers completely gagged on that game. Yes, absolutely. But for the vast majority of games, I go, no, this dude is a star playoff performer. He's just let down by who is around him. You can't win a championship without that. For every Tom Brady, you know, you have to have 10 versions, 
20 versions of your Malcolm Butlers or your Adam Vinay Terry's or players like that in order to win. You have to. For every Michael Jordan, you got to have your Pippen or your Rodman or further down the list, you got to have your Steve Kerr who can hit the game-winning jumper against the Jazz in game six of the NBA Finals or John Paxson who hits the game-winning jumper against the Phoenix Suns in game six of the NBA Finals. You have to have those people. So Suns, Avalanche, both gambling favorites to win their respective titles. And that's under the assumption of both of these things. On the one side, the star power. Okay, yes, I'm very confident that assuming good health, Chris Paul and Kemal Carr and Nathan McKinnon, they're going to bring it. They just are. I've seen too much to think otherwise. After that, however, is where their legacies are going to be decided, a part that is very strange about sports. Because the margins, those things that exist out there, right on the fringes, they're going to be decided by what role players are ready to assume larger burdens and how well they are able to do that. Now we're talking Mikhail Bridges and DeAndre Ayton. And we're going down further. We're talking Cam Johnson and Jay Crowder and Cameron Payne. Just go down the list. These people are going to have to come through in order for Phoenix to win a championship. The Avalanche, yeah, you get further down the lineup, past all those stars I mentioned, you go, okay, Arturi Lekin, you're going to be, you're going to have a big say on whether or not Colorado wins a championship. Valeri Nachushkin, same thing. Uh, Sam Gerrard, small defenseman. Okay, let's, you're going to have your say. Josh Manson, his defensive partner. JT Comfer, players like this. You need that. You need both of these sides. Think of them of half spheres or three-quarter sphere as the star and the quarter sphere that's the role player. You got to fit them together because it's through this combination. Star playoff performers at the top supplemented by role players with playoff-ready skills. It's through this combination that championships are won. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Holy cow, what a time to be alive in the world of sports. NBA, Stanley Cup. Hopefully we make it through. If I die, this podcast will just stop existing and you will all know what happened. It's probably going to be tied into the Colorado Avalanche and whether or not they win the Stanley Cup. However, at the very least, to honor my memory, to honor my death, go and sign up for my free newsletter. It's easy. ChrisRawl.com. There's a subscribe button in the top right-hand corner. Click it put your email address in. I will send it to you every Wednesday morning. I will not abuse the privilege of having your email address at my disposal. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Watch all the games. I'll be back here on Tuesday morning to talk about what we have witnessed. Mm -hmm.